0: This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leads Art Week.
1: Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm your host, Jeremy Bergeron, the Vice President of Media Strategy at Mission.org. And this is the show where twice a week, you'll get VIP access into the hearts and minds of some of the most influential marketers in the world. On Marketing Trends, we'll do two things. We'll go deep on a human level, and we'll go even deeper on the nitty gritty of what makes for the most successful marketers and strategies today. I'm glad you're here. Now let's get into it. There's a growing concern bubbling beneath the surface of marketers' feet. Third-party cookies are going by the wayside. This has been a really effective tool that marketers have utilized for years to target specific populations they deem are more likely to be interested in and purchase the products they're selling. Moving forward, marketing in the digital space is going to look a bit different. Some say it'll be survival of the fittest. Others argue your data strategy should already be so robust you shouldn't be reliant on off the shelf data. Everett Taylor is the chief marketing officer of Artsy an e-commerce platform that allows users to buy art from literally anywhere in the world with the click of a button. But while most marketers are doing a deep dive into their cookie strategy, Taylor's focus remains elsewhere.
0: For us, we have the audience. Our top of funnel has been as strong as ever though. Even in the cookie list world, I'm not gonna give away no secrets, but we are crushing it. But on top of that, the biggest opportunity for us is that we have amassed the world's art collectors. How do we re-engage them? How do we inspire them? How do we make them want to use Artsy on a daily basis? I think that's the biggest opportunity. I ain't worried about no cookies.
1: While most companies are simply trying to build brand awareness and interest, Artsy has it and Everett knows it. On this episode of Marketing Trends, Everett joined me for a fun discussion centered around his life and the unique circumstances that took him from his first job at 14 to serial entrepreneur and to now the CMO of Artsy. Everett and I touched on the role of the CMO today, including what separates a great marketer from a CMO. He explains his frustrations with digital marketing, citing a lack of innovation, and looks forward to implementing more physical marketing tactics that will actually leave an impression in his overall strategy. Brightspot Content Management System enables marketers to launch in just 100 days. It efficiently manages marketing campaigns, on mobile apps, or updates investors on your corporate site, handling it all seamlessly. With over 100 plus different content types and templates, marketers can deliver a customized, relevant experience to your audience. Additionally, integrate your current marketing automations platform and SEO recommendations directly from your BrightSpot content management system. Simplifying tool management. Discover more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Marketing Trends. This is Jeremy Bergeron, Vice President of Content at Mission.org. Today, I am extremely honored to have Everett Taylor, Chief Marketing Officer for Artsy in the house. Everett, welcome to the show.
0: Jeremy, thanks for having me, brother. I'm excited to be here.
1: Where did it start? Where did marketing start for you?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, marketing started when uh, you might have saw this in the interview before. I was doing things that I wasn't supposed to be doing on the streets. And, you know, um, my mom forced me to get a job. And I was 14 years old. And in Virginia, you can actually work at 14 because we have a large farming culture and et cetera, et cetera. So I had a job interview at Chick-fil-A. And I had a job interview at Eastern National. And I really, really wanted that job at Chick-fil-A. I mean, it was at the mall. There was going to be a lot of girls. It was the fun place to work. My homies worked there. So I really, really wanted that Chick-fil-A job. But the first interview I had was with Eastern National, which is is a nonprofit that actually runs the gift shops and bookstores um, for the national parks on the East Coast. And they were looking for a junior marketing associate. And I still remember to, the day, to this day, the job paid $6.18 an hour. And uh, I didn't know anything about marketing. And I went into the interview and I was answering marketing questions. And I didn't realize what marketing was. I had no concept of marketing. It was just very matter of fact for me. It was just very common sense to me. You know, Understanding people, making sure. you know, a, lot, a huge part of this was marketing and merchandising. And uh, I ended up getting that job at 14 years old in high school. And that kind of sparked just my first, even initial interest in marketing, even though I still thought I was going to like play basketball or do something like that. You know, I think I pushed back on it for a very long time that I was just like, I don't want to be a marketer. That sounds lame. Like, you know, I want to do something else. But the more and more I got into it, I really fell fell in love with it and it inspired me to, you know, embrace entrepreneurship and to embrace marketing leadership at different startups and, and things like that throughout my career. And so that that was really the genesis of it all was something that I really didn't want to do that my mom forced me into, to falling in love with the ability to really impact the lives of the companies that you work for, um, you know, the, the audiences and the customers.
1: That's amazing, man. I I actually I think Eastern National's still going. Mm-hmm. I think they're still rolling today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. because um, I saw a nonprofit come up and I was wondering if that was the same, the same brand. Mm-hmm. So, um, man, that's amazing, dude. And what, you know, and what a what an incredibly inspiring move by mom. Yeah. You She's know, dope. like, hey, I'm gonna fill this out, you know, like that's incredible, man. Yeah, happy belated um, to her, her I, I
0: birthday with September 4th, the same as Beyonce's hey, She's dope.
1: That's beautiful, man. Yeah. Um so, okay. So that's, that's where it first started for you was Eastern National. And was that where the tactical stuff kind of started too as well? Like what sort of the stuff you were learning kind of the, the nitty gritty marketing stuff? Was that because junior marketing, I don't know what your role was specifically, but when you start getting into maybe tactics and strategy and kind of grabbing onto that?
0: Yeah. The, the first time I started doing that was um, when I went to school, my first job um, when I went to school was actually actually was working full time while in school was a marketing coordinator for United way. So my, my initial mm. kind of career started in the nonprofit space and uh, and so I was a marketing coordinator, essentially like leading all of marketing programming for um, new river Valley, which is like a part of Southwest Virginia. Um, and okay. that's when the tactical stuff started coming in wow. and to really think okay. about how to engage people, how to reach people, Um, what are the things that they're going to find interesting? How do we get people to convert? Like, I didn't, I wasn't thinking that way, but like, obviously getting people to convert to, to donate and things like that and to volunteer, et cetera, et cetera. So that's when like the tactical pieces really started to come into me. And that's when I really felt like I was becoming a marketer at that point.
1: Gotcha. Okay. So what was the first CEO? Like first time you were like, oh yeah, I'm starting my own thing. What was that company?
0: That was called Easy Events. And so okay. Easy Events was a year after that um okay. United Way job, yeah.
1: One of the companies was had like 40% growth. I don't know the name of it. it was like 40% one and the next one was like 600% growth, which is it's it's exceptional. Both both percentage of growth is awesome, but of course the 600% growth sticks out a lot. I'm curious as to what was the difference between that those two businesses? Why was that one so in some ways, significantly higher. That's massive growth.
0: Yeah, I think you got the 40% growth from my first CMO role, which I grew the company sticker mule 40% within a year. Um, The 600% growth, I don't know if it was quite 600, but uh, that was with Pop Social, which I was CEO of. And uh, our second year numbers, we grew. like We went from a $2 million business to an eight-figure business in year two yeah that's crazy.
1: And a lot happens operationally when you go from that level to you know to the to that to that eight figure range yeah and then infrastructure and delivery and all these things what was that process like for you because of of course look the growth always sounds good from the outside looking in like yeah. oh my god that's amazing but the full contact sport that you're in the middle of as you're growing this thing is probably some of the best, you know, skill sharpening experiences oh, and you know, sure. when you're cultivating that. What was that experience like being in the middle of that growth and trying to, you know, sustain it, keep it rolling, keeping the team, all of the operational things. What was that experience like? You know,
0: I think sometimes marketers get distracted by the things that aren't working instead of the things that are really, really working. And, the, and what we realized is that, um, our biggest growth channel was through affiliate marketing. And through, believe it or not, there's a huge economy of courses, like people teaching people how to like grow a business or, you know, do this or do that. And we realized that those were some of the best affiliates because people are taking their courses, trying to build their businesses. And our product was great for people trying to build their brands and build their businesses and things like that. And so we created a whole, Affiliate network, you know, we turned off paid marketing. We, 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 some of the things that you would traditionally think to do. Yeah, we really yeah. lean heavy into uh, that affiliate marketing strategy, um, which was great and and really scaled our business tremendously without having to like scale up the team very much.
1: That's an interesting play, you know, kind of doubling down on affiliate marketing, turning off certain things that other marketing leaders would say, "No, that's crazy, don't yeah. do that." Why did you think affiliate first?
0: Well, it was just, it was, we kind of just kind of stumbled into it. You know, Um, I had a friend, Danielle Leslie, who's like has one of the biggest course businesses um, out there, like millions of dollars a year. You know, she wanted to use it for her team. And then we realized like a ton of our new users were just coming from this one person. And we're like, how can we do that? And we realized the payout to her was way cheaper than what we were spending on ads and so we're like how can we replicate this model as much as possible and so that's wow. that was that was a very interesting way to grow but it was it it worked really really well for us
1: man that's amazing one of the the other one of the other shows i get to host is we talk to CEOs and founders of businesses and and it's interesting to it's always interesting for me to talk to a guy who's been the CEO and is now in the CMO role, or the opposite? We had a guy on a couple of days ago who came from a CMO world, now CEO. You've done both. You're doing, you're full-time at CMO now. How much has that experience informed your, the, the role of CMO, being a CEO? I feel like nowadays, you kind of, the the modern day CMO has to speak that language of the CEO. And yes. you come from that world yourself. So I'm curious to kind of hear, hear your perspective on that.
0: You know, I think my CMO role is very, very, interesting because I don't think I'm your typical CMO in a sense of, I very much think like a CEO and all of my time is not spent on marketing in the marketing organization. Like every week I'm working on problems and thinking through problems and strategy across the business, because one of the biggest things that being a CEO benefits being a CMO is understanding the parts of the business that impact marketing more than marketing itself. Right. Understanding if, you know, this product or this thing, this operational thing that's happening or something that's happening with ourselves, team, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many different things that are happening within or HR or, or recruiting. There's so many different things that impact marketing that is not marketing. And when you have that CEO mentality, you're always thinking about, the whole scope of the business. Whereas sometimes CMOs can maybe think too insular. And like one of the problems I see just being a CEO or being an executive a lot of times is that people, they think very much in silos, right? Like if, you, if this is your part of the business, you think about that part of the business and you're biased towards that part of the business where you don't think what's best holistically for the company. And I think one of the best things about having that CEO experience is always kind of having that holistic idea of how all of these moving parts work and what things that you have to impact to make sure that marketing is as effective as possible.
1: Yeah, that's tremendous, man. I think it's, that's something I'm seeing a little bit more and more, but also I'm seeing a lot of engineers become CEOs and I'm, and I'm having those interesting dialogues or, or folks that started in engineering ended up in a CMO role, you know? So it's the, the perspectives it's fascinating, man. And um,
0: they don't got the sauce though, man. (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) Like a lot of the engineers and I love engineers, (laughs) but man, you know, sometimes they think too much in numbers, man. And they like marketing, you got to leave with your heart too you have to understand beyond those numbers is people with feelings and and families and whether it's B2B or B2C, right? Like whether it's Mm -hmm. somebody running a business that you're selling to or whether it's a consumer, these are people behind those numbers. And so one of the things that I see sometimes, And not saying that all engineers that become CMOs are like this, like no disrespect at all, but and, and I say it vice versa with some of the CMOs who are so brand focused that they can't speak the technical language of engineers and product managers to be able to really shift things the way that you do. I got stuff for them too. You know, I got cr- criticism for those people as well. But one of the things that I'm seeing in, in just digital marketing is like a lack of innovation because people have become so like, number of focus are like, oh, we're going to do this thing. This thing works, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to scale doing this way. And I think people lose sight of, how important brand perception, brand marketing, brand equity is in the grand scheme of things as well. And so it's interesting to see that shift, but it's it's more than just the numbers
1: for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it's everyone has an interesting take on it. And and I I look at the different, you know, the different facets of these organizations and these leaders, the, the, the entire executive leadership team, they'll come on our a couple of our shows and we'll really get a sense of like, how they're really shaping the culture or what they bring to the table. Let's, let's shift into just kind of your first, you know, 90 days at artsy. There's a lot of cool, great CMOs out there and they've done some awesome things, but you have a certain authenticity. Like, you you know, you, your quotes, one of my, my favorite quotes, all good things come to those who stay true. Also one of my favorites, you have that approach of like, nah, intuition's still really important and feelings really important. So for me, when I ask this question, it's a little more meaningful to me personally as a marketing leader in my business of like, what did you do in your first 90 days at Artsy? What did you sit down and assess? How did you start building the team? What were those early priorities? What are you thinking about in your first 90 days as CMO at Artsy?
0: Yeah, I think the first thing is the humility that comes with taking a new job. So I think sometimes when you come in as an executive, you're like, you know, you got your ego, you did this, you did that. You're like the new executive, shiny executive on the block. People have these big expectations and you don't realize that you probably don't know certain things that maybe even some of the most junior marketers that people on your team knows. Right. And you got to have that ability to humble yourself to say, Hey, I really need to learn. And like artsy is such a complex business. We're B2B, B2C. We have a lot of different business lines. We have our subscription revenue from galleries. We have fairs. We have auctions. We have our marketplace. We have our secondary market. Like there's so many different moving pieces to our private sales. There's so many different moving pieces to Artsy. The biggest thing, the first thing in my 90 days was like, I need to sit back, shut up and learn. Like you have to be able to do that because you're only going to make yourself look stupid coming in as a CMO saying we should do this or we should do that. And you have no context on what the hell is going on with the company or business. Right. And I took the time to really learn and humble myself and, and hear people out, you know, and ask questions, be inquisitive. You know, why do we do these things?
1: Dude, I just want to say that that's exceptional. Like literally today before this episode, I was recording a script for a show. And one of the one of the examples we gave was Marissa Mayer. Do you know Marissa Mayer? Yep,
0: Yahoo.
1: So yeah. yeah. so her first first ninety days at, at Yahoo, what did she do? Sit. Yeah. She got a lot of slack for, a lot of heat for it. What are you doing? She literally just listened and sat. And it was like the opposite of what you would think most people do. So to your point, man, success. Leaves clues, and that's really cool that you chose to kind of like posture because you bring a lot of experience, you bring a lot of really cool perspective, and right. and you have you have you have an, a cool authentic approach. And you could have just said, "All right, let me yeah. whip out all the tools," but no, you waited.
0: And trust me, for every person like that, like appreciates that approach, there's other people that might be unimpressed or disappointed. Sure, that sure, you're not. I mean, I got. I got criticism within my first 90 days. Like I can openly say that I, I had someone openly criticized saying, you know, they expected more and it, they just heard me, you know, kind of plus wanting things and listening and, and things like that mm. and not being as aggressive. Now that's not the case at all, but it was just like, that's the approach that I wanted to take. And I thought it was the best approach for me. And one thing you have to learn as a leader is that you're never going to have a 100% approval rating. You're never going to make everybody happy. Someone is going to always nitpick about something that you do. You can literally be like, hey, the sky is blue. And someone's like, wait, no, the sky's not blue. It's it's periwinkle. And I'm like, what the hell is periwinkle? Who even <laughs> knows what that color is? And then it just becomes a whole thing. And so what you just got to realize is that you got to be you got to really have tough skin and, and understand that, like you have to do the approach and make the approach that's right for you um, at the end of the day. And I, I was going to say the second thing is while you're while you're being quiet, and you're taking things in, is that you should be assessing team culture, positive energy, negative energy, people who have the right skill sets, people who don't have the right skill sets, people in the right jobs, not in the right jobs. You should be assessing that in the first 90 days. And I don't come with that dictator approach where I'm like, oh, fire this person, let this person go, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I really take the time to to see what is what needs to be done and what needs to be changed within an organization in 90 days. That's why I think it's kind of crazy when, you know, as a CMO, I don't think you can really have real impact the way that you want to until at least after the first year, like you can do some things and you can make a lot of great things happen. I say this all the time. There's a difference between being a great marketer and a great CMO, you know, as a great marketer, you can, you can grow the company. You can do things in the first year, but to be a great CMO and be a great leader of a marketing organization, it takes longer than a year.
1: You know, they say that, you know, with CMOs, when they take the role it's for either for a rebrand, a reorg or, or retire, you know, it's like mm-hmm. you get, you get a shot and it could be, you know, for the, a, a nice retirement or it could be, Hey, I got to find something else because the CMO role is also the, you know, I think one of the highest in terms of turnover and people kind of being in and out, as you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, a week, in, in that role, no way. What, what is your thoughts on uh, Masterworks? We had their CEO on yesterday. Where, Do you know about, about Masterworks a
0: bit? I am familiar with uh, Masterworks and respect what they're doing. Um, I think it's, it's definitely a completely different audience than, For than, sure. than Artsy. But I mean, investing in art is very, very smart. But I, the one thing I would argue on something like a Masterworks is that I think you get a better investment investing in emerging artists. Rather than the Basquiat's and things like that that have kind of already grown to a lot of its potential, but but again, art is like one of the best investments that you can make, and I I love the ability to provide that democratization and access of ownership to art. Even though it's Mm -hmm. a weird, it's kind of weird, but because you don't get to have the work yourself.
1: Yeah, I'm curious about that too. I mean, he in some ways, you know, he was they were the first ones to securitize you know art, and so they've done some interesting things in that in that space it'll be it'll it'll be interesting to see how they deal with recency to your point of like more up and coming artists and like how that shifts cuz you said you know Banksy and Basquiat and some of these others they... NFTs
0: man like if you're really looking exactly. for like those financial investments i mean you're going to get a way bigger return on emerging artists and NFTs at this point than maybe some of the you know more established artists
1: one thing that's interesting i think between your two businesses is he also kind of has a, B, uh, you know, a B2B, B2C, you know, element of his business as well. So shifting that to you at Artsy, because you got the galleries, you got the shows, you got, of course, the consumer. As you kind of look at those two pockets of, of really important audience for you, mm-hmm. how do you view those two? What's the strategy in place for those two and the stories that you're telling those two? Or do you kind of fit them together and use the same approach to go attract and retain all, both of them?
0: To me, I genuinely think a lot of this stuff is super aligned. Like they play on one another, right? And it's so interesting. We just did this exercise of, you know, really kind of reestablishing what our core value props are for both our B2C and B2B users. And what we realized, they were pretty much the same, insane, right? Because these are two people who are using our platform completely differently, but when you really broke down you know broke down the two you could see the similarities in the both of them and and how closely and how closely aligned both sides had to be because of it you know and so mm. it's been it's been beautiful kind of to see to bring that synergy in the B2B and B2C teams closer together you know here at RT as we think through you know that alignment in terms of what is what is really our core value props on both sides and how those two play off each other.
1: How do you really see Artsy changing the landscape for artists and artwork?
0: Well, number one is, is before Artsy existed, no one was buying art online. You had to physically go to a gallery or go to a show or have the connection to a potential art advisor or a gallery and now we've provided the ability that any and everybody can collect art from around the world our average artwork <laughs> gets shipped 3000 miles from gallery to customer wow 3000 miles we are truly a global company you know we we did <laughs> this interview on these this couple their nickname is the icy gaze they're just a wonderful couple and it's crazy to see that like before to people in South or North Dakota being able to to create an incredible collection that they were able to create, that would not even be possible before. And because of a platform like Artsy, we've provided that visibility and that access to anybody who chooses to want to enter into the art world and not have to deal with the intimidation that typically comes with it you know, the exclusiveness that typically comes with it. And I think that's a really beautiful thing. And then also just making it more seamless and easy that you can actually put a credit card and boom, just buy an art piece, right. And ship an art piece that was not even the case, you know, years ago. And so I think for us, the ability to really democratize the space, create a more open Mm -hmm. space for people to buy art, to make art businesses more fluid in the way that they do business and to reach new people. Like, You're a small gallery in Boston, the fact that you can get a collector in Paris or Pakistan or wherever, like that's incredible. That just opens up the game for everybody.
1: Yeah, it seems like the communities you're able to build across I mean, across the network, man. You talk about, you know, this idea of mycelium, you know, this network that's all yeah. I mean, you have the the galleries and all of the events happening. And of course the artists themselves, the community is fans that are both new and old. So you've got some probably pretty amazing data. Um, that's telling you all kinds of intelligent things about how artists are moving, how galleries are moving. And that's, that's interesting yep. in terms of like the types of stuff. Cause you, you, you sell, you know, really like original high end original collections, you sell photography prints and yet it seems like, like you said, the audience is global, you know? And so is there a, a target demographic you look through to tailor that message to this wide audience or how do you, how are you kind of being a one stop for everybody?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's two things. There's two core audiences that I really focus on. Number one, the okay. first one is going to be a little bit boring, but bear with me. This is
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm
0: specifically talking about B2C right now, right? Is what we call the experienced art collector, and the experienced art collector is someone who know he or she knows what type of art that they like, what they're interested in, the type of artists or specifically the artists that they're interested in, um, and they know what they're on the hunt for, right? So there's not really a need to like go through this whole educational process and crazy onboarding process and teaching them and getting them to the point in which they want to buy art. That market is already a $70 billion market. The experienced collector, plus what we call the elite collector, who's beyond that, who's the ones that's buying those $100 million Basquiat, whatever. That's not really our focus, right? It's the experienced collector. But they make up already a $70 billion market, right?
1: Wow, wow.
0: So if we get 1% of that market, we're a $7 billion company, right? So when you think about it that way, then of course, we have to focus on that core demographic, right? What is really interesting, though, is, is expanding that a little bit, which we've started playing around with, is high intent art buyers, right? So that means they might not be the experienced collector or elite collector, but they are actively looking to buy art. Maybe that's an interior designer. Maybe that's someone who just moved into a new house or opened up a new office and they're looking for art. If that person is looking for art, no matter if they know what they're doing or not, they have the high intent of buying art, then we want to be able to serve that person as well. Even, even biggest bigger play, and that's opening up a multi-billion dollar market just there. But the biggest play, which we haven't got to, is really educating and inspiring which I, I think we 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 still with our content, our product, and the way we're building are still inspiring a new generation of collectors. It's just not our focus, right? You know, you think about that seventy billion market, you can maybe double that by just expanding the market just a little bit more. Like only two percent of millionaires buy art, right? Four percent, boom, it's crazy.
1: Well, you're describing like the, the those with the intent and and not the the depth of experience in buying art. Like we, right. our our team is like that, and my wife is like that. Like we you know, we started getting some of these guests on the show that are kind of in the art world. And so we started right. looking at art more and now, right. oh wait, we can invest in art or we can buy it off Artsy. And, yeah. you know, and then now it opened up a whole world for us of like, okay, where do we want to start to collect these things? You know? So yes. it. I have seen, I did notice that some of the things, some of the really cool stuff that you guys do at Artsy is, you know, you do help people how to buy art. You know, there's, there's a lot of content, a lot of things being done there. How do you think about Creating content like what avenues of content work well for artsy, and what are you really leaning into today?
0: I will say this: the how to buy art stuff. If you look at it, it's probably like older years ago before I got into artsy, because I really <laughs> started to get our, fo- our focus into the experienced art collector and what they're going to be interested in. They're going to be interested in collector profiles. These are the things other collectors are buying because other collectors want to know what other collectors are buying artist profiles, they're going to want to know about who are the in-demand artists, the data behind those artists, et cetera, et cetera. That's what the experienced collector wants to see and the type of information that they want to to see. I think the second piece, I think at one point, RT used to write about everything and create content about everything. Then we leaned very heavily into like the market and making sure we served the experienced collector. Now we're leaning kind of into that middle point of like also understanding There's something about brand building, right? And things that, uh, and building brand perception and reaching an audience that, you know, may not be as savvy as the experienced collector. So building some content for that too. But really our focus is going to be on the experienced collector and that data and that wealth of data that we have to share and the types of things that they want to see. But also understanding that content is also important for brand perception and brand building as well.
1: What were some of the challenges of going after that big market of the experienced collector?
0: The challenge of the experienced collector, they can be stuck in their ways. they establish established relationships. They, you know, they have their contacts. They have a way of doing things, you know. And I think our fastest growing segment on RT is what we call like the digital savvy experience collector. And this is the person who is experienced but grew up in a world where like Amazon is common to them. They buy cars online they buy houses online and things like that so art is not something that's foreign to them to buy online this this is the way that they want to conduct so breaking
1: through to those
0: maybe older experienced collectors is a little bit tougher because they are stuck more so stuck in their ways
1: does rc use influencers
0: we don't do influencer marketing per se it's something that i'm i'm considering because in the art market I would say us writing and taking the time to cover, say, a collector is is just a different type of influencer marketing, right? And so I think Artsy has to look at that differently because we could pay some big movie star, some influencer to talk about Artsy. And is that really going to impact our target audience? No, right? But if we have the right interview or the right partnership with the right people, that influences the art market a lot more
1: do you look for other kind of brand collaborations kind of outside of the less common kind of partnerships that some of these like i don't know within the fortune 100 or
0: oh yeah we got we got some we got some stuff coming we got some <laughs> stuff we got some i
1: had coming. a i had a sneaky i had a sneaky suspicion yeah there's a there's some there's some stuff cooking
0: there's some stuff you know, there's some so- there's some stuff cooking you know it's it's interesting you know uh i'm heading into year 3 soon with rt and i felt like Year one was such a foundational year of just getting the marketing organization into a good place and, um, you know, getting the right people in and really kind of setting the the foundation for the future. Second year has been like just, you know, rapid growth and like really killing it and doing things that we've never done before. And I think this third year is really going to bring a lot of things together because now we have that foundation, we have the synergy that we want, we have. The ability, one of the things I say to people all the time is like, people don't know what they're capable of until they do it. And one of the things that I try to do with my marketing team is always inspire them to go outside of their comfort zone and realize, you know, what it is that they're truly, truly able to do and what they're truly able to accomplish. I think my team is the greatest man. I'm biased. I, I really do. And, um, you know, some of the team is, is people who didn't come from traditional marketing roles and, you know, they're really seeing the power of what they can bring to the table this year. And I think next year they're going to be unstoppable. So I'm really excited. And and one of my favorite things to do as a CMO is is invest in the development of the people around me.
1: What's your thoughts on agency versus kind of in-house? A lot of CMOs. I mean, we have agencies
0: that we work with too. So if you add agencies, then obviously it's a a lot more people. But um, I think it, it just really depends on what your needs are. You know, for us, it, it doesn't make sense for us to hire a whole big comms and PR team. And so we have an agency that we're equipped with like, I think, seven people working on just, you know, RT. Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm.
0: That's cheaper than hiring seven people to do that, you know. Um, and so and we just brought on, for instance, a consultant for you know, some of our UK and European PR stuff. So understanding the cost of full-time employees and then understanding, you know, subject matter expertise and the cost of that, sometimes it's better to contract that out.
1: How are you dealing with kind of international expansion and in RC now? Because it's certainly... A big play globally, and you talk about you know localizing messaging for people in different countries and reaching those art investors and or the artists that that want to buy art or new or old. What is kind of your thoughts on how you're approaching you know the marketing from a global kind of view? Are y'all there now? Are y'all already international?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we have a global team. We have customers and users from 190 plus countries. Like we're 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 a global team. You know, we have people our company that in our company that speaks all different languages, you know, yeah. you know, we have offices in Europe and all over. So um, we're definitely a global company. I think, you know, for us, you kind of break it down by what is the biggest priority, you know, for us, US, UK, because of the markets are going to always be the most important. So you have kind of like tier one, tier two, tier three. Right. And so tier one is obviously US, UK, which is our bread and butter. Tier two is going to be, you know, you know, the rest of Europe for the most part, Hong Kong and other big markets within the art world. And tier three is what we call rest of world, um, which is, you know, every essentially everyone else. And depending on what tier you're in, like obviously U.S., U.K. gets the most prominent marketing and they're English speaking countries. Um, number two gets a, a nice, subs, like a nice Lump of marketing and tier three is more light marketing, like for instance, like Google AdWords and things like that. Um, just stuff that you have to do to maintain SEO, et cetera, et cetera, but might not have like dedicated marketing campaigns towards those okay. countries. So that's gotcha. the way that we look at it, and 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 we're looking at that purely from like GMB revenue, um, uh-huh. size of their markets, et cetera, et cetera. It's very numbers driven there.
1: What about this cookieless world that we're now in? How are you winning at RT in this kind of new cookie-less world?
0: I say this all the time, and I don't say this to to be cocky. Our target audience already pretty much know who we are. The biggest thing is now is impacting the brand perception to continue to get them to feel good about RT and choose RT. And then also, we have over 2 million users. There's not over 2 million art collectors in the world, like real experienced art collectors in the world, right? Think about how many people do you know who have bought a $50,000 painting and they're like, there's not a lot of those yeah, people. Yeah. There's probably only thousands of people mm-hmm. in the world that have bought a painting for more than $50,000. So for us, we, we have the audience. So right now, you know, our top of funnel has been as strong as ever, though, even in a list world. I'm not going to give away no secrets, but we <laughs> are crushing it. But on top of that, the biggest opportunity for us is that we have amassed mass the world's art collectors and like, how do we re-engage them? How do we inspire them? How do we make them want to use RT on a, on a daily basis? I think that's the biggest opportunity. I ain't worried about no cookies.
1: I love that. That might be the quote we grabbed for the whole show, by the way. He ain't worried about cookies. (laughs) I love it, dude. Um, What are, what, in terms of trends, look, I mean, the name of the show is Marketing Trends. I'd be remiss if we didn't at least cover this a little bit with you. What are some trends in the e-commerce industry like that you see playing a big role for artsy moving forward?
0: More traditional marketing. We've been killing it with out of home. It's been very effective for us. We launched a direct mail campaign. Like who thinks about doing direct mail anymore, but like, you know, that's very effective. I just heard about some guy who just spent like maybe like a hundred some thousand dollars just from, like one piece of direct mail, you know, like those are the things like really thinking about, all right, people are getting, you talk about cookies, people are getting kind of saturated with digital advertising. The things that catch my attention are real world things, like out of home, direct mail, experiential, cool partnerships, things like that. Like you got to continue to, to, to hit the, hit the pavement with your digital marketing and uh, your paid acquisition and things that you have to do. But at the end of the day, it's, it's really like 360, man. You got to think about how you're going to touch people everywhere.
1: You know, there's, there's a PDF floating around the internet somewhere of, you know, marketing, Marcom technology, you know, MarTech solutions. I mean, dude, this, this graph is like, I mean, it's, it's like, it's unending of all the tools, all the intelligence, all the data, one of our partners is Salesforce and they just put out a report. One of the leading titles on the report is marketing is spelled data, you know? And so there's big emphasis on data, big emphasis on technology. How do you kind of navigate? Because there are some, look, we evaluate marketing tools too. And I'm like, damn, that's an awesome tool. But I mean, I would be buying all kinds of tools every day if I didn't know what I was really going for. How yeah. do you evaluate all the really cool technology out there?
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, you got to you gotta know what what is your bread and butter and the things that has worked for you in the past. And then also equipping your team with the right tool set. Like we brought in this VP of growth, Robert Lambick, who is the GOAT. Honestly, he led growth at uh, Spotify and he led growth at Headspace. And he's literally the best. Robert, if you I listen to this, you're the GOAT. You're the best. Never leave me. Um, and, <laughs> and, and you know, understanding that like there's things that I understand and, and and things that I know that I want for the team and things that he specifically knows. And so I'm always listening, right? Like for instance, there's stuff like software for PR and comms that I'm like, oh, that seems like not that important. But when they break it down to me, I understand the importance of that. And so I think as a leader, is one, you should already have amassed if you're if you're a CMO and you don't have have amassed a knowledge of the marketing stack that has been effective for you throughout your career, probably not a great CMO. And then after that, it's like, it's about listening to your colleagues and your team about what they need and making sure that they have the right things that are equipped for them. I'm not out here constantly searching for new MarTech stuff. Like, yo, I'd be blocking all of y'all emails, all of them. It's insane. <laughs> so, you know, I, um, so, you know, I try to keep it pretty chill, but yeah, you know, I have, I have my set of things. And then also I think it's about equipping people with the things that are going to make them successful and really hearing out your team and understanding like, hey, this is this is something that works for them and works, you know.
1: I love it. You you mentioned before that you want to build an art gallery in Richmond.
0: Yeah, that'd be dope.
1: How close is that to becoming a reality?
0: That is actually like probably like 60% there. I would have said like 80% before the pandemic. Um, now it's like 60% there. I, I need to find a new space. But yeah, that's that's definitely happening. I'm hoping to be able to open it up in 2022, late 2022.
1: Why is that a dream? It's
0: a dream because I grew up in Richmond, Virginia in a space where I didn't have really access to art um, outside of like street art and things that I saw on the street. And so for especially young black and brown kids to be able to see that there are artists out there that are making incredible work, that they can actually have a career in art or collect art or be involved in the arts. I think that's one of the biggest impacts I think I can have on the community because I thought unless I was like playing basketball or or selling drugs or rapping that I wouldn't really have an opportunity to do something. I would have never thought that I would be working hard. But look at me now and like imagine if Lil Ev saw uh, Kehinde Wally, you know, or something like that when he was young and got fascinated into it. And so I want to be able to bring that experience to so many people in my hometown. I think it's important.
1: I love it, man. We, you know, we got four, we have four little ones at home under the age of four. So we got three-year-olds, we got two 18, we have twins and they're seeing this art that we're buying now. Hey, thank you, man. I appreciate (laughs) it. But to your point, and you know, they've been seeing the art we've been buying for our house and seeing the art in the studio. And and we have two, three-year-olds and they ask a lot of questions, you know, about that. So I love that you're devoted to the younger ones coming up, man, because I think it's it, that's what excites. I know me as a parent, and then also a new kind of purveyor of art myself. I'm like, it's an exciting path I never even went down before. So, yeah, man, you got a, you
0: got the RT app on your phone. I do. Okay, awesome. I didn't ask you because typically the first time I meet somebody, as the first thing I ask is, do you have the RT app on your phone? And if they yeah. don't have the app on their phone, we can't have a conversation.
1: We we can't, we can't do talk. it. We can't do it. Look, you can see it. What I'm talking about. Appreciate you, man. Cool. So here's the lightning round. Uh, Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Salesforce brings marketing and engagement together. So learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. We got Everett Taylor, Chief Marketing Officer at Artsy in the house. Uh, Your man rarely does interviews. So I'm just excited that we got to somehow convince him to take some time today. Um, Everett, first question. Do you have... Uh, a favorite band or artist?
0: Frank Ocean.
1: That's awesome.
0: And he got a dope new jewelry line too called Homer.
1: Oh, I didn't know that, but yeah, I'm going to write it that out. One down yeah. too. Cool. Awesome. I love him, man. He's great. Who is the most interesting person you know? And you can't say me.
0: Henry Taylor.
1: Henry Taylor.
0: He's an artist. Yeah.
1: If you weren't in marketing, what would you be doing?
0: I would be running a nonprofit.
1: Okay. Okay. What kind of nonprofit?
0: I have the idea for this company called 2044 to end homelessness by the year 2044. Um, So I would, I would be doing that.
1: Yeah. Okay. Favorite apps on your phone. Top, top few apps. What can't you live without?
0: Uh, Artsy first of all, duh. No, but Artsy is genuinely one of my, one of my favorite apps on my phone. Um, Probably WhatsApp, man. Like just being able to keep up with friends. A lot of people within the art world use WhatsApp to communicate. It's like the global the global way to to communicate so i would i would say that but no genuinely artsy is like my fave and then obviously like i have apple music spotify and and title so just like music is like life for me so but anyways arts i would say artsy and then and what's
1: thank you so much man everett taylor such an honor to have you on the show we appreciate you we'll see you again soon
0: thanks brother thanks for having me